Do you remember that single from 1984? It was entitled Obsession, and it was by an emotion, and it um, kind of made us all break into a cold sweat as we watched MTV. It really was a bahnbrechende, barrier-breaking um, lyric, actually, uh, except the artist wanted to be so, so cool about it. But the... Um, Lyric and the name of the group um, become the titles for a two-part podcast. This could be one of the more important ones, sort of like My Sharona was a while back, or a number of people say that they have this or that favorite one, but this is uh, number 333 in the batting order, and it does uh, actually um, bring... uh, Uh, one's attention to bear on a repetitive but vital theme that I've been talking about for several years now, but also in the light of a Christian uh, um, perspective, more than that, a Christian understanding, more than that, a Christian, um, in the Gerald Hurd sense, that bright light shining out over the plain from a prison watching for escapees. Remember the bright light through the fog that can miss you, but is absolutely excoriating and um, transcendently illuminating. And um, I'm going to give a real, um, you might, it's a bit of a Paul White slash New Testament slash faith-based slash optimistic sort of antidote, or rather, again, I want to say um, kind of sense of an inner meaning to the problem that the cast, after this long intro, tries to um, present. And the problem is the relationship of anima and animus in the human being, hence the name of the group and the song Obsession. The um, most, uh, the word in uh, German is dick, the most dense statement of truth in observing the way men and women relate to one another that I have ever read <clears throat> comes in a uh, essay fairly late in the output of Carl Gustav, uh, Gustav Jung, and um, I almost feel like I'm a living cliche when I uh, talk about Jung, but it's important. And you may not have actually heard this uh, this read or seen this particular excerpt that keeps coming back to me. It all came out of study of Ryder Haggard, but it's, um, it's Jung and his profoundest. I used to wonder why all these middle-aged Episcopal ministers became Jungian therapists. I mean, I had close um, connections, uh, very deep personal connections with uh, clergy through the years, but especially in the sort of, oh, sort of mid-70s to mid-80s, who at the height of their careers, uh, their ministries, good men, they were usually sort of fairly low church or broad church, liberal, but not... um, not one-sidedly so, they, liberal in, in the theological sense, they would um, suddenly drop everything and uh, become uh, Jungian uh, therapists. And uh, this, I later found out, often had to do with issues that had come up in their marriages, which is very understandable. I have great sympathy for clergy and husbands and wives. It is a very, very 
um, what's the word? It shines, uh, ministry shines uh, an x-ray lamp on one's uh, deepest relationships. And uh, you're sort of out there and vulnerable if you're anyway kind of a team. And I always felt sympathy, but I, I didn't have sympathy for the part that sort of was purely uh, seen almost pantheistic and was almost looking for sort of a foe or substitute or parallel faith <clears throat> within the Jungian um, theistic view, which is not specifically Christian and for all sorts of reasons that he had although he considered himself to be a Christian right up through to the end of his life. I'm, uh, I was always a little bit um, disappointed when clergy would become Jungian therapists. I now um, am certainly not a Jungian, primarily because I don't find in Jung's uh, um, diagnosis the real treatment. I don't find in his... Uh, the therapy that he prescribes anything less than about a 12-year um, therapeutic solution to people whose uh, problems are illuminated by the Jungian archetypal view, but um, I think that it's weak in the um, antidote, and that's why I want to talk a little bit about the um, what I regard as a New Testament or Christian um, light on the Jungian Issue And it's going to come, believe it or not, initially through the, the short stories of Damon Runyon, the um, American kind of sports writer, come brilliantly, linguistically um, embedded New York journalist who wrote so um, powerfully and poignantly short stories in the 1920s and 30s, and a little bit after that. And uh, I'm going to bring in Damon Runyon in a couple of movies, believe it or not. As we look at uh, the human predicament in light of Jung and what the Christian understanding of God's actual work in fallen lives amounts to. But in this short um, podcast, this is part one of An Emotion. This is going to be um, a little bit of sort of quick breezing through Bavaria. I used to work for the National Geographic Society's lectures Department. One summer I spent a summer working for the Department of Lectures and in Constitution Hall in Washington on Fridays they used to have these very, very well-attended uh, by subscription only um, lectures on that would be from various sites around the world where National Geographic photographers and people, everybody from Leakey to Jean-Jacques Cousteau would lecture using movies and films that had been taken, mostly my National Geographic affiliates and photographers. And uh, once I was in charge of helping to put together and organize and, and sort of in a very much an assistance way, kind of produce one called Breezing Through Bavaria. And I've never recovered from that. But this is kind of breezing through Carl Jung. But this is the, I'm going to give you now, I seldom do this because I seldom read, but I'm going to read a short, but not totally short, passage in uh, the Collected Works of Carl Jung, volume 17, about the <clears throat> human personality in light of maleness and femaleness. And I think uh, if you can dwell on it, you can look it up, it's uh, available, but it's in his uh, volume 17 of his Collected Works, you'll see something e extremely potent going on here. I'm going to read it and then comment on it, and then in part two of the podcast, um, open up really um, 
the only way to look at it from faith, and it's really a very, very good news. But first, you have to know it's wrong. You have to diagnose effectively the human situation. And it can be said that one of the areas where uh, the human world at this particular point in time is most profoundly um, off is where we have misdiagnosed the relationship of men and women. That's my view, that, uh, uh, that there's a, it's not so much a wrongness as a confusion about uh, maleness and femaleness within the human being <clears throat> that uh, has deeply uh, unsettled, uh, 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 th- uh, thrown the apple, up, up, upended the apple cart. And I find it not convincing, a great deal of what uh, passes for um, observation these days. And when I read Jung, it like sort of cuts through the whole thing, and I see it. And that's why I'm going to share it with you. You don't have to believe a word of it, but this is what Carl Jung wrote, ultimately, about the um, maleness and femaleness. Now, first he's going to talk about men, specifically males, and then he's going to talk about females. In, in the, first, it's going to be how man, men or man sees a woman, and then it's going to be about how, in his view, <clears throat> woman, for the most part, there are always exceptions. I know that. This is not 100%, but I believe my experience at age 71 and after all these years in the parish has led me to um, uh, lend credence to what Jung is saying all in all. This is what he says. Every man carries within him the eternal image of woman. Not the image of this or that particular woman, but a definite feminine image. This image is fundamentally unconscious, an hereditary factor of primordial origin engraved in the living organic system of the man, an imprint or archetype of all the ancestral experiences of the female, a deposit, as it were, of all the impressions ever made by woman, in short, an inherited system of psychic adaptation. Even if no woman existed, it would still be possible at any given time to deduce from this unconscious image exactly how a woman would have to be constituted psychically. The same is true of the woman. She, too, has her inborn image of man. Actually, We know from experience that it would be more accurate to to describe it as an image of men, whereas in the case of the man, it is rather the image of woman. Since this image is unconscious, it is always unconsciously projected upon the person of the beloved and is one of the chief reasons for passionate attraction or aversion. I have called this image the anima. The anima... Now, he's going to say that a woman has the anim... It looks at... The man is the animus, U.S., and the woman, from the man's point of view, is the anima, A. Woman, continues Jung, has no anima, no soul. But she has an animus. The anima has an erotic emotional character. The animus, a rationalizing one. Hence, most of what men say about feminine eroticism, and particularly about the emotional life of woman, is derived from their own anima projections and distorted accordingly. On the other hand, the astonishing assumptions and fantasies that women make about men come from the activity of the animus, who produces an inexhaustible supply of illogical arguments and false explanations." 
Now, there are certain types of women who seem to be made by nature to attract anima projections on the part of men. Indeed, one could almost speak of a definite anima type. The so-called sphinx-like character is an indispensable part of their equipment. Also an equivocalness, an intriguing elusiveness, not an indefinite blur that offers nothing, but an indefiniteness that seems full of promise, like the silence of a Mona Lisa. A woman of this kind is both old and young, mother and daughter, childlike and yet endowed with a naive cunning that is extremely disarming to men. Not every man of real intellectual power, now he's speaking about women, looking at men, not every man of real intellectual power can be an animus for the woman, for the animus must be a master not so much of fine ideas as of fine words. The animus, that is the man to whom the woman is unconsciously attracted, according to Jung, must also belong to the, quote, misunderstood, end of quote, class, or be in some ways at odds with his environment, so that the idea of self-sacrifice can insinuate itself into the woman. The animus must be a rather questionable hero, a man with possibilities, which is not to say that an animus projection may not discover a real hero long before he has become perceptible to the sluggish wits of the man of average intelligence. For man as well as for woman, insofar as they are, quote, containers, the filling out of this image is an experience fraught with consequences, for it holds the possibility of finding one's own complexities answered by corresponding diversity." So just as the animus projection of a woman can often pick on a man of real significance who is not recognized by the mass and can actually help him to achieve his true destiny with her moral support, so a man can create for himself a femme inspiratrice, that is, a woman of inspiration by his anima projection. More often, however, it turns out to be an illusion with destructive consequences, a failure because his faith was not sufficiently strong. Well, now, let, let me uh, sum that up, and then we'll have it. Um, he believes that men are looking for a part of themselves they're missing, called the anima, that is the feminine part of a man. And women are looking for a part of themselves, the masculine part, which is missing because it's, she's a woman, at least it's not there in large part. So they're looking for something called an animus. But he says that what men are looking for is different from what women are looking for, because according to Jung, what a man is looking for is a particular sort of spirit thing, um, unconsciously, a spirit thing called an anima. And the Anima is this sort of um, sphinx-like, uh, uh, hard to pin down, mysterious, but full of promise, um, kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, spellbinding, uh, dazzling sort of um, person. Whereas the woman is looking for a man who is different from what she is expected to have. A man who is different from the men she has met. This is, in other words, she doesn't really want to get married to her father. We know that often happens, but she initially, she'll be looking for someone who's different from the kind of person that she's expected to be looking for. This is why um, women, we, Mary and I, from the earliest times we were in ministry, because we were, we were constantly with young men and women, constantly who were sort of dating and looking and in the sex, uh, sexual market, in the, in the broad sense of that word. And we were constantly amazed at 
the kind of men that of so many women we knew who were terrific got attracted to. The most beautiful, no, rather the most uh, wonderfully steady, solid, thoughtful women would suddenly be dating the most uh, gross, yucky, mean, uh, very male, but not nice, and often ended up being abusive, would often be dating, we call it the crumb, C-R-U-M-B syndrome, because the, the so many of the attractive and eligible women we knew were going after what seemed by the world standards to be hopelessly wrong um, men, but that we would, uh, as if they weren't seeing what was obviously happening. And of course, later on, a tremendous amount of carnage was wrought by marrying, you know, a goddess who's an axe murderer, as it were. But similarly, we saw in our own experience, many men who would be absolutely dazzled by um, some beautiful wraith, R-A-W-R-A-I-T-H, of a girl who would just absolutely fall at the feet of, of, say, a very superficial person, but someone who had the kind of that, what's the, Clara Bow, you know, the it girl. They had some kind of factor. Now, to be honest, they were usually sexy blondes. Um, So you'd have some incredibly... um, uh, you know, says some guy you knew who is really thoughtful and smart and great and a physicist and uh, falling at the feet of uh, someone who could, could, could barely put a sentence that he could uh, t- together. But she was beautiful and wispy and had that quizzical equivocalness that he talks about, Young does. And uh, you remember the expression, blondes have more fun? Or to use uh, Anita Luce, one of my heroes from early Hollywood days, she was a great person and doesn't fall into this category, but Anita Luce wrote a play and a book called Blondes of, of How to Marry a Millionaire. Remember? How, how to Marry a Millionaire. And the, the uh, great theme was, that, you know, blondes have more fun. Um, so when it was between Rosalind Russell and Marilyn Monroe looking for the millionaire in the movie, it was always Marilyn Monroe who was going to get it because she had that quality that men just, I mean, Arthur Miller married to Marilyn Monroe. You know, I was, um, I lived across the street from Marilyn Monroe's child. <clears throat> and my mother, I would be, she'd be get, taking me for a walk in the stroller. And she said, oh, there goes the famous person, Marilyn Monroe, across the street. And I saw this sort of blonde person and there and and there was this fellow with her and it was always Arthur Miller and, and now that I know I've read Arthur Miller's plays now how do, how does Arthur Miller and Marilyn how do they come together well um Arthur Miller represented something that Marilyn Monroe wanted um which she didn't have if you've ever ever watched her or listened to her or saw her interview she was gorgeous and wonderful but but not um, like Arthur Miller. And similarly, Arthur Miller, instead of going for, you know, some, you know, Mary McCarthy, someone down in the East Village or someone who was, you know, had gone to Radcliffe, etc., he falls at the feet of uh, of Marilyn Monroe and uh, Yves Montand, you know, and that, that sort of thing. Um, it, uh, And I saw this again and again in myself. I would be just headstrongly attracted to... Um, Someone who sort of uh, was a, a, be, be, the beautiful blonde from Bashful Bend, <laughs> and uh, and yet right in front of me was you know would be the most terrific, deep, powerful person. And Jung is also saying that when a woman marries a man who's completely breaks the mold and she marries and she goes off and marries the ultimate hippie or whatever it was, like, like you know, Meryl Streep marrying uh, Woody Allen and then marrying um, whatever his name is, that's Wallace Shawn, remember, in Manhattan? Are you kidding? Um, it would be because um, um, she, she'd marry someone out of type and yet her, then the maternal would kick in and she'd want to support and sustain and so this little twerp, you know, 
know, from wherever it is, or at least you regarded him as a twerp when you were in school, he marries the gorgeous blonde. And then because of her devotion, dedication, he ends up becoming famous because she supports him. You know, behind every great man is, you know, the old thing. Um, and um, so all I'm trying to say is this is really a universal. And if Jung is right, it probably covers about... Eight out of ten or four out of five of every relationship you've ever had with a person of the opposite sex. You can probably find elements of what Jung has just said in probably four out of five of the relationships of the yearnings and the dedicated lovings uh, in your life. Um, and you might have broken the mold to your great joy and happiness, happiness, but um, you probably haven't. Certainly the ones that broke your heart. And if you're a woman listening to this, you, you probably have found yourself being attracted to people that everybody else said, how could she possibly go out with that guy? Well, he broke, he, he, you, you were comparing him with the men who you were, people thought you should marry, and naturally you had something instinctive um, uh, drew you out of that and to marry somebody in contrast to that. And this is what is both... Uh, positive about the human condition, explicatory and elucidatory of the human condition, and very, very troubling. Very, very troubling, because it, uh, it involves uh, the conviction that we are uh, driven by forces that are millions of years old. This is not about ethnic identity. It's not about cultural. It's not about economic. It's not Karl Marx. It's about forces within the human personality of all races, all types, and both sexes that are so deeply embedded in the sort of two-million-year-old man that they uh, are undeniable and undefeatable. And this uh, would account for why we do the things we do. So that's where we're going to end right now. And then we're going to talk about um, the um, God's way of working within uh, the way he has set it up. Now we're going to hear just a tiny excerpt of the movie Obsession by Brian De Palma.